Well, if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I won't, how many of you would enjoy being around, knowing, or hearing someone that does not take themselves too seriously? Someone that can laugh at themselves. Let me give you a couple of examples. When Democratic Senator Fritz Hollings from South Carolina decided to make a run for president, he decided to go ahead and have a lie detector test done because there was a big fuss back then about lie detectors and this and then the other. And he reported that he flunked the test. He failed because the first thing he said was, in my humble opinion, We all remember Bob Carey of Nebraska when he announced his availability for the Democratic presidential nomination, and he made an appearance at the National Press Club in Washington. Now, the National Press Club in Washington is like walking into a room of sharks, okay? My, uh, our oldest son, uh, Chip, is a uh, photojournalist for Getty Images, and sometimes he's been invited, and he says, Dad, it's not nice. So somebody asked Bob Carey, how do you compare yourself to the late William Jennings Bryan? Now, William Jennings Bryan had been up for being a presidential candidate in 1896, in 1900, and in 1908. So Bob Carey, after a short pause, replied, well, most importantly, he is dead and I am not. And one of my favorite first ladies, Barbara Bush, once was compa comparing herself to her predecessor, Nancy Reagan. And she says, Nancy Reagan adores her husband and I adore mine. She fights drugs, I fight illiteracy. She wears a size three, so is my leg. <laughs> what, isn't it nice to have somebody with a sense of humor, you know, a, a sense of, perspective, that they don't take themselves that seriously. They can say things and convey a message with perhaps a tongue-in-cheek way. Well, if you like someone like that, you have got to like Jesus Christ. That guy is amazing the way he presents things. In contrast to that, we know that he's been presented in the Old Testament by the prophet Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, as we all are, we're acquainted with grief at times and sometimes we are sorrowful, but hopefully sometimes we're also joyful and funny. So I don't see Jesus as a somber person, a sourpuss, or it's just absurd. One of the greatest gifts that was given to me is a single piece of blue construction paper. And on it was a replica, a picture of Jesus laughing. He's not smiling, he's belly laughing. And it's the face of Jesus belly laughing. And I went like, that's right, that's right. We have a God that loves us. We have a God that is happy. We have a God that can tell jokes. Now, on the other side, his cousin, John the Baptist, he's, he's not the kind of guy you want to go out to, you know, anywhere in a happy hour. He's just not. You know, he's talking about vipers and 
this and that and the other and, and always repenting, and, you know. I think John the Baptist was probably the initiator of the guilt in the Roman Catholic Church that I experienced as a child. I was guilty for everything. I did not know what it was, but I knew that I was guilty. So imagine Jesus with a smile in his face and a twinkle in his eye so that we can hear some of the things he said. So with that image in our minds, let's look at the gospel today. He's been invited to perhaps a tense situation. He's been invited by one of the leaders of the Pharisees. It's the Sabbath, and remember, he's been jacking around with the Sabbath a little bit. He's been moving around and doing some things he's not supposed to do. So they're watching him closely to see what it is he's going to do. Well, he looks around and sees how people are seating themselves, and he says, you know, when you're invited to a wedding feast, remembering a wedding feast would last seven to ten days with all sorts of food and drink and partying and so on and so forth, suppose a more prestigious person than you is invited, where would you sit? Then the host of the wedding feast will come to you and ask you to move down and be embarrassed. So let me give you a better strategy, he says. When you go to a wedding feast, sit at the lowest place. That way, when the host spots you, comes up, calls you by name, and says, come on, sit up closer. And what a joy you're going to have walking around saying, excuse me, excuse me, oh, didn't mean to bump into you. Excuse me, I'm, I'm going to sit up there. So you can imagine the sense of mirth, sense of, of um, happiness, you know, a joke has been said, a story has been told that is not awe-inspiring, it's not anything that a spiritual leader really spends time doing. But folks are sitting around grinning at the freshness of his insight. It's light-hearted, and then comes a hammer. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And all of a sudden, a pall of seriousness lands. Because at that time, people begin to think, when have I exalted myself? Is that what I've been doing? Should I not be doing that? Should I humble myself? And it is in that thinking he turns to the host, and he says, when you throw a party, don't invite people that can pay you back. That's easy to do. Invite those that cannot repay you, the lame, the poor, the crippled. Then you will be repaid with something that will be with you forever at the resurrection of the just. I picked up a couple of lessons from this story. I know there are more. Greatness is not measured by how much we gain, but by how much we give. Every year, Forbes magazine comes out with a list of all the millionaires in the world and billionaires and all that. How many can you name? How many examples and saints, saints in the church can you name? I bet you you can name more saints and millionaires. 
the church has put together, our tradition, our, our denomination has put together a book. It's blue, it is softback, and it's called Holy Women and Holy Men. Maybe as a spiritual exercise for yourselves, buy one and every day read the person of the day in a little short bio. So you will see our ancestry, who put us together and who continues to be the saints of today. So who will we remember in the future? I think we will remember people like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and some of the other ones that are in that book and perhaps not in that book, but we know that they're shaping and molding the present and the future of our church, of who we are as children of God. And they will be remembered for their giving. Someone that continues to amaze me, regardless of his uh, Christian beliefs or political stance or whatever, is Jimmy Carter. Folks, he's over 90 years old. He's still wielding a hammer building houses. Two, three years after Bishop Stanton was consecrated, he wanted to bring the unity to the uh, diocese where we had been divided over other issues. And he decided to go and approach Habitat for Humanity and said, if I gather 200 people, can you use us? And of course, you can imagine what they said, absolutely. So they set up two different sites for us to go and work. It is hard work. It's not just hammering a couple of nails and saying, ooh, that's good work, I can go home now, I'm happy. No, no, you spend the whole day sweating, cutting, lifting, hammering, putting together, just to take a quick sandwich and lemonade break and then start the afternoon. So I really, really admire what he does. Maybe unattainable, unreachable, former president and all that, I want you to know what our youth is going to do soon. They're going to go to Costa Rica, to the town of San Jose. If you've been in the town of San Jose, it is on the Pacific coast, and uh, it is north of an area called Antonio Manuel. Antonio Manuel is where the rich people go. That's just as simple as I can put it. The homes are multi-million dollars and all that. San Jose, they're shacks, there are very few stores. It is a very poor town. Our kids are going into that setting to build houses. Those are the ones that are giving today. Those are the ones that we will remember, not Forbes' list of millionaires. So I believe that greatness is measured by what we give. The other lesson that I got is that the true stature of a person is not measured by how much we puff ourselves up, but how humble we are. So beware of anyone who says, I alone, he or she, can fix this. I am the only one that has the power to do that. Because the moment that happens, that person has done the same thing that Narcissus did when he saw his reflection on the water. He fell in love with himself 
and he was the center of everything. In 1970, there was a research by the Kinsey Institute on the sexual attitude of 3,000 adults. In 10 years, by 1980, the research had not been published. Why? Very simple, but very sad. Albert Klassen and Colin Williams were the two major researchers. And for 10 years, they fought with each other as to whose name was going to be listed first. Imagine the good that that research would have done in those 10 years. They didn't care about that. They care about whose name is going to go first. And the other example is something we know. If you remember the, the, in, the, in the play, The Bird Chanticleer, Chanticleer thought that he controlled the sun because every time he crowed, the sun would come up. And then one day became busy, distracted with something else. And guess what happened? The sun came up without him crowing. See, we puff ourselves up. It just simply does not work. We can act very silly, actually, when we puff ourselves up. And we can evaluate ourselves much higher if we're simply humble. Now, I want to try to understand humility with you. I want to throw something at you. Humility is not groveling. Humility is not walking around with uh, tattered clothing or uh, you know, self-flagellating with a whip. Um, it's not that. Humility is simply knowing what our gifts are and what our shortcomings are. If I do not know how to do something, I need to ask someone for help. And I see Keith in the background. He knows for so many times I've come to him and said, I can't do the computer. Folks, I am a total computer dinosaur. I cannot make one work. I had a fear a long time ago when they started coming out, those big old massive computers, that if I punched the wrong key, a small village in Europe full of innocent children would blow up. And to this day, and he's my witness back there, I still have difficulty doing computers. For a period of time at another parish, I had a series of sermons for children and they would come and gather at the altar once a month. And there were times that I wanted to do things, but my mind was not quite there. The, the pieces were not fitting. So I went to Nancy, my wife, who's a teacher, a speech therapist, and who was a Christian educator here at St. Michael's for 15 years, many years ago. And I would say, I want to get here, and I am here. How do I get there? And she'd say, why don't you try this, 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 this? Humility is knowing what my impediments are, what my shortcomings are, and overcome those with others' helps. The greater the emptiness that we have inside, the greater the need to surround ourselves with the trappings of success. 
the more unsure we are of ourselves, of our own self-worth, the more we need the envy of others. The less sure we are of ourselves, the greater our need to lord it over, over others. Yet someday we realize the Salasham, that's not what's gonna get us in heaven. Matter of fact, do this today, in between football games or whatever else you're gonna do during the holidays. Get up, go home, get a little bowl of water and stick your finger in the middle of it, pull it out and see how big the hole is that you left behind. That's how important we are. That's how important we are to the world. To God, we are much more important. The Bible tells us that Jesus could have had anything and everything. But you know what he did? He humbled himself from God to human, to be betrayed, condemned, to die, so that he could resurrect to give us eternal life. That's the consequence of his humility. If we want the greatness, let us follow Jesus' example. And then, someday we'll be asked to move closer to the host at the heavenly banquet. I promise you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.